Well, hey, good morning. My name's Corey Mitchell, and I'm one of our adult Bible teachers here at LEFC. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series, Rock of Ages, a study of First and Second Peter. So I want to invite in your home to turn to Second Peter chapter 1, so you can join me in our time of study here this morning. So uh, back in November, Pastor Tony and I, we had breakfast together. And during that breakfast, he mentioned to me that he was considering doing First and Second Peter as the next series, next sermon series. And he, he knew at the time, of course, that would be our first series that we would be doing while we came into the new building. Now, neither one of us could possibly imagine at that time in that discussion that we would have had exactly one Sunday in the new building and then not be able to meet together for three months. But nonetheless, uh, I affirmed that that leading that he had uh, to use First and Second Peter for the series. And I mentioned to him that Second Peter is my favorite book in all the Bible when it comes to the subject of understanding the Bible as the Word of God. Now, probably the best known and most off-cited passage in the scriptures on that subject is in Paul's second letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where he writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's a great text. Obviously, you know, we, we probably know it well, and I love the text. But what I love about the Second Peter uh, passage, particularly in chapter 1 that we're going to look at today, is how it expands uh, on Paul's comments and on his understanding there. So I'm going to read the whole text uh, for the morning. And this is, again, Second Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 21. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to start, I actually want to start with the last two verses. If you're going to take one thing away from this morning, let it be this understanding that Peter is expressing to us in these last two verses. It's the above all section, right? 
Now, let me make one comment, uh, just a translation comment here uh, before we get into it. So in the NIV, this phrase, prophets though human, that you find here in verse 21, prophets though human. In the Greek, that's just a single word, anthropoi, which would typically be translated men, men or mankind, human beings. And, and the point that I bring this up, the reason I bring this up is that uh, it's speaking about more than just prophets, if we understand prophets to be like the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah or Hosea, right? This is really speaking of any of the authors of the scriptures um, in this prophets, though human. Now, this, uh, these two verses, these two verses in 2 Peter 1, uh, these are my go-to verses on this topic. Uh, I love what this expresses. Uh, the depth of what uh, Peter is saying uh, is significant. And so the first thing that I want to observe about them, first thing we should take from uh, these verses is that the, the Bible is written by human authors. It is, it is humans that wrote the Bible. And so therefore, it bears their writing style, their word choices, uh, the context in which they found themselves in history uh, and in what they were writing uh, as they had their encounter with the living God. And so when we study the scriptures, we, this is, needs to be part of our study. When we're, when we're looking at a text, whether it's 2 Peter or any of the texts in the scriptures, we factor this in. Who's the author, if we know the author? Uh, and what is the writing style of the text? Why do they use the word choices that they make? Uh, and, and certainly, what is the context? When were they writing, if we can know that? And, and what was the situation that was going on? That's just a good Bible study technique. And if it's an author who's wrote multiple uh, portions of the text, of the scriptures, multiple books, then we look at those texts uh, because it's a common author, and we'll factor that in. So that's an important part of Bible study. It's important that we understand that. But even more importantly, we need to understand that it's not simply written by men. It's not the idea of men, the, idea of the ideas of the authors, as the text says, right? It's not their own interpretation. But behind these things, behind these things that are written, stands the Word of God. It is the Word of God expressed by His Spirit through these authors. Now, we often uh, hear uh, the phrase that the scriptures are inspired by God. And of course, this is accurate. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I like how, I like how Paul expresses it back in the Second Timothy passage. It's not just that they are inspired, but they are expired. They are breathed out. He breathes them out. And so, again, our understanding needs to be that these, all of these texts that we read, they carry the markings of the author and the author's, the intent of the author and the style and so forth. But what's amazing about the text is written over 1,500 years, about 40 authors, uh, all walks of life, shepherds, fishermen, all the way up to kings, three different continents, three different languages, but they all had an encounter with the living God and they put it down for the people of God, for the church, for the community of faith down through the ages for us, that God has made himself known through his word. Now, my love of Second Peter for this particular topic isn't just in these couple verses in chapter 1, 
uh, but there's other portions. Now, I believe that the reason Peter wrote this letter is because of what we find in chapter 2. Peter's concern was for false teachers that were finding their way and, and having an, into the church body uh, and having an impact, right? That's why I believe he wrote this letter. His concern uh, was there. But he bookends that chapter 2 with, first of all, what we just looked at, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. And if you look over at the beginning of chapter 3, reading verses 1 and 2, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So I love these, I love these verses. I love this text uh, because of Peter's, certainly, once again, the recognition of the scriptural authority of the prophets but also of Jesus' apostles, those he called, those he called to be with him, uh, and the scriptural authority that is in their letters that they write to the churches. And then one more portion uh, in chapter 3, further down, uh, in verse, picking up in verse 15 and 16. Peter writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Other scriptures. Some of your translations will read the rest of the scriptures. I love these verses. This is Peter's affirmation of the scriptural authority of Paul's letters. Peter was a lover of Pauline contribution. He recognized God's anointing on, on Paul. He recognized Jesus' unique calling of Paul on the road to Damascus, saying that Paul was going to be his, his witness, his chosen instrument before Jews and Gentiles. And so collectively, I love this, I love this book. I love what Peter instructs to us. Now, I titled this morning's message, The Perpetual Reminder. This is Peter's per per perpetual reminder to us that the scriptures are holy writ. It is the word of God through human authors. Now, 2 Peter is one of the dying declaration books of the, Old of the New Testament writers. So it's like 2 Timothy or like 3 John. This is the apostle's final letter to the church. And Peter recognizes that. We can see it in the text. If you look here in verses 13 into 14, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in a tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter recognizes that this is his last opportunity, right? This is going to be his last letter. And so like any dying declaration, right? Like any last opportunity, you're going to say what is most on your heart, what you want to be remembered. And so this is Peter's instruction. This is the perpetual reminder. And it's interesting, in verse 12, uh, and again writing to uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, this letter is written to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious of ours, right? That's who he's writing to. And he says of them, says of us that we know these things and we are firmly established in this truth 
that we now have. We know these things and we're firmly established in the truth. And yet, three times in these first few verses, three times he says he needs to remind us. Verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory. And then again in verse 15, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So if we know these things, and if we're firmly established in these truths, why do we need to be reminded? Why is it three times he's going to remind us? Well, I think the answer is because we forget, because we drift. As the hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded by the scriptures. We need to be reminded by one another. The videos we just watch, people reading the scriptures, that is a powerful thing that we would read these things to one another and remind ourselves of these truths. And we need to be people who will remind others, speak into their lives because we drift, because we can forget. Another reason that we need to be reminded is because of cultural influences. All down through the ages, the people of God, the church, um, was lit, have been living in cultures that would be discouraging them in these matters. Are you still holding on to those things? Do you really believe these things? As it, as it says in Genesis 3, did God really say? And so we need to be reminded and we need to remind one another because those around us, the culture in which we find ourselves may be pulling us away from these truths. And then lastly, we have an enemy of our soul. Speaking of the Genesis 3, did God really say, we have an enemy of our soul who would desire to, desire to deceive us. Jesus said of him, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. At LAFC, we believe that one of the marks of a disciple is to live truth. In order to live truth, we have to know truth. And this is what Peter tells us. The scriptures, the Bible, this is the truth. This is the very word of God made known to us. As Peter says in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you that. But Peter, how can you be sure? How can you be sure that these are not cleverly devised stories? How can you be sure of these things? And his answer is, we were eyewitnesses. When we told you about, we, were, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw these things. We saw the miracles he performed. We saw the healings. We heard the teachings. We saw him go to the cross. We saw him be raised from the dead. We saw him ascend into heaven. We were eyewitnesses of these things. Within the last year, our family has started to do family Bible studies each Saturday morning. It took a long time to get there, uh, but we finally got to this place where we established this, and it's our regular routine. Every Saturday morning, we have family Bible study. A couple months ago, one of my daughters asked a really important question during that study. She said, how can we trust the Bible? And I said to her, we said, that is, I said, is such an important question to ask. And it's an important to be able to ask, to be willing to ask, and it's an important question to be able to answer. 
So my mind kind of, you know, your mind races when you hear the question. Now, just a little background. I was saved when I was 24 years old. I became a Christian through the ongoing friendship and the witness uh, of a dear friend and roommate when I was at Penn State University. After we had left school, we continued our friendship. Uh, and and uh, through that friendship, I was saved, became, gave my life to Jesus. And I can remember that as a young Christian, uh, I read Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter. And that book really had an impact on me, particularly in this area of talking about like our confidence in the text and what we think about the Bible and so forth. Uh, in particular, I can remember a section of the book where he talked about the number of New Testament manuscripts in multiple language and compared that to the number of manuscripts of other works of antiquity and how they're not even, I mean, it's such a drastic difference. That really helped me. That gave me confidence as well. So I thought, of, you know, that kind of rolled through my mind quickly. But what I, how I ended up answering her question, how can we trust the Bible, was by telling her a story. And it's a story I want to share with you. So another friend of mine um, from Penn State, back when I was a pretty new believer within the first couple years of being a Christian, uh, he was living in Allentown. He had grown up in the Pittsburgh area, going to high school in that area. And uh, he was going to be going up to New York City to visit a young lady that he had graduated from high school with. And so he invited me to go along. Um, again, I'm a new believer. She wasn't a Christian. Uh, and so he asked me to come along. I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'll go up with you. Uh, just a day trip, kind of up and back. And we were just going to walk around the city. And so that's what we did. We went, I went along with him. We went up and uh, spent the day with uh, this friend of his, uh, this young lady living in Manhattan, involved in the, uh, her, her work was in the fashion industry, uh, which is kind of a nice juxtaposition to me here. I'm this, whatever, yokel from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, and so we went, we walked around the city, walked around to a couple museums and went through them. And, you know, to be honest, as a, as a, both a young man and a young Christian, I was pretty brash in how I responded to things in our conversation. I could be really direct. I could, you know, lack some tact and wisdom. And so I managed to uh, annoy her repeatedly uh, in the things that I said. Uh, and at one point, she got so annoyed, so bothered by what I said, she actually kind of stormed off from, uh, from us towards the bathroom. And my friend, my dear friend, he rebuked me, and then he, uh, he headed towards her to kind of comfort her and calm her down, talk her off the ledge, if you will. And he told me later that when he walked over to her and um, to, to kind of calm her and comfort her, he, he told her that I had been an atheist, and then I had come to become a Christian. Now, I probably would have called myself an agnostic, but let's not split hairs, right? Uh, him, his sharing that with her, that really impacted her. That really, that really struck her. And so we found ourselves back at her apartment later on uh, in, the, in the early evening. Uh, at some point, her roommate came out of her room and sat down, and we were and listened into our conversation. And she asked me this question, uh, following up on that, that interaction she'd had with my friend. She said, how is it that you used to not believe these things and now you've come to be a Christian. How, how is that? And, you know, it's one of those moments uh, where you just sort of, the answer's there. You just know what to say. And I, I responded and I said, I, I came to believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And then she asked a follow-up question, very similar, I think, to my daughter's question that morning. How can we trust the Bible? Uh, it's a question you may have been asked as well. Like, well, you know, but it's 2,000 years later, and, and, and you know, how can, you, how can you be sure that, 
you know, you can, you can trust what's there, what it says. Uh, and so I, I answered in this way. I, I, I said, well, how can we know, how can we assess anything, uh, whether it's true, uh, you know, how do we do that? So especially if we weren't the ones who experienced it firsthand. So I asked her a question. I said, do you believe there was a World War II? Can, you, can we know for sure there was a World War II? And she said, yeah, I believe we can know that. I believe that there was a World War II. I said, okay, how about World War I? Do you believe there was a World War I? Can be sure of it, even though we didn't see it. We weren't there. It was before our lifetime. Yes, we can know that. Yes, I, I believe that we can be confident in that and know that. How about, do you believe that the 16th president of the United States was Abraham Lincoln? Yes, I believe that. And I kind of kept going with that further and further back in time. And, and until the last thing I said was, do you believe there was a Roman emperor named Julius Caesar? And she said, yes, I believe that's true. I believe we can be confident about that. And so now here's Julius Caesar. This is before Jesus is even born, right? We've gone that far back in time. And so I said, well, if we can be confident and we can trust in these things that we didn't experience firsthand and that go back so long, why wouldn't we at least assess the Bible, assess these, these, these eyewitness accounts of the apostles in the same way? Why wouldn't we at least uh, apply the same yardstick to these things as we would to these other uh, events of history. And the point I was trying to make to her and the point I want to make to you is the power of eyewitness accounts. Peter saw these things. They wrote these things down in the Gospels. They saw what Jesus did. So just to tie a little bit of a bow around this, this story with this young lady. So... I only saw her one more time, actually, it was at my friend's wedding, and he married his wife, not, not the lady in New York. Um, that was the only other time I saw her. But, but after we had come back from New York, uh, my friend uh, shared with me that he had kind of followed up on the conversation and asked her, and uh, she, said, uh, she said that she was going to start reading her Bible. And that was obviously very encouraging to me, and I, I took that uh, once again as being the power of this idea of eyewitnesses. Peter is an eyewitness. They saw these things. But it's not just that he was an eyewitness. As he says here in verses 17 and 18, speaking of Jesus, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So not just eyewitnesses, but earwitnesses, if you will, right? heard the voice uh, from heaven. Now, what's interesting about this is in First and Second Peter, there's only one time in these two letters that Peter refers back to an event during their time with Jesus, during that, uh, those years of ministry. And it's these two verses here in Second Peter 1, 17 and 18. Now, it's, I, I thought, well, Boy, if you're only going to share one event, why wouldn't it be the resurrection? We saw Jesus raised from the dead. Well, I think, all right, surely one of the reasons is kind of the grandeur of the moment. This is what we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. So the grandeur of the moment, the fact that they heard the very voice of God. But I believe there may be more to it. There may be uh, more to why this moment looms so large for Peter and why it would come to his mind uh, in this portion that he's writing. So here's what I want to do. I want to 
Let's leave 2 Peter, and I want to turn. Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 9. So go with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to read this account about the man at Mount of Transfiguration. So it's Luke 9, and it starts in verse 28. And I just want to give a moment of context. So the, the very first week of this series on Rock of Ages, First and Second Peter, Nick Todd, he spoke about um, Jesus at Caesarea Philippi with Peter, and uh, he asked the, his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they responded, and then he asked, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave the good response, the good confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, this event, the Mount of Transfiguration, according to the Gospels, happens about a week later. And the mountain, according to tradition, is Mount Tabor. This is in the Galilee region uh, of Israel, uh, very close to the town of Nazareth. So that's where this takes place. So let me read Luke 9, 28 to 36. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they, became very, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So a couple observations on this amazing text, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, first of all, Jesus has Peter, James, and John see this moment. Right? He brings them with them up on the mountain, and he has them see this moment. Now, just a question I have. This is just how I read the Bible and kind of what goes through my head. How did Peter know it was Moses and Elijah, I think? And I think, well, uh, Elijah's probably wearing a garment of hair uh, and a leather belt. And, of course, Moses probably looks something like this. Uh, and I think you might recognize this. Charlton Heston, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, so surely that's what he looked like, right? Something like that. Well, in all seriousness, uh, think of this testimony, this eyewitness testimony of Peter, James, and John. They saw in person Elijah and Moses. Elijah, who had walked the earth almost 900 years earlier, Moses, 1,300 to 1,500 years later, earlier, they saw them. They saw them speaking with Jesus. Now, it makes sense to me that Peter would be amazed at seeing these great heroes of the faith uh, and that he would want them to stay on the mountain and let's set up these tents for him, right, and have them stay up here. That makes sense to me that he would respond uh, in that way. But let's consider this. Jesus would elevate Peter. Peter also is a great hero of the faith. 
You know, this might be an, an embarrassing moment for him to recall in his second letter. Uh, he didn't know what he was saying here, right? The, the gospel writer writes. But Peter would be raised up as well. Back to that same moment. Who do, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter. He responds to the, to the good confession. I tell you that you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Moses and Elijah are great heroes of the faith, but so is Peter. For us, he is a great hero of the faith. We would be incredibly excited to see Moses, Elijah, and Peter ourselves. Now, I like the Luke account. The reason I chose the Luke account of the Mount of Transfiguration to read is because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say that Moses and Elijah appeared and they spoke with Jesus. But the Luke account tells us what they spoke about. In verse 31, it says, They spoke about his departure, his exodus, which, was he, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So I picture this, that they are there. They know what's about to happen. Jesus knows he's going to be rejected. He's going to, he's going to go up to Jerusalem for the last time, he's going to go up. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be put on trial by his own. He's going to be handed over to the Romans. He's going to be crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. Forty days later, he'll ascend into heaven. So they're there, I believe, to encourage and to comfort Jesus. And there's a beautiful symmetry to, uh, to me about this, that it's Elijah and Moses. Because both Elijah and Moses were also comforted on the mountain by God. Moses, of course, called uh, on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, uh, from the burning bush, called by God to go and deliver his people from Egypt, fearful, but God comforts him, right? I'm going to be with you. I will go with you. And then Elijah, after the great moment on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal and uh, this incredibly high moment, and then he's fleeing from Jezebel, and he flees to that same mountain that Moses was on, flees to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Right? And he's ready to die. He believes he's all alone. But God speaks to him in a still, small voice on the mountain, comforts him, right? You're not alone. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. So there's a beautiful symmetry here that in the same way they were comforted and God spoke to them on the mountain in the same way they're there to comfort, to encourage Jesus for what's ahead. But then I think, well, why is it, why is it Moses and Elijah, right, who would be there to comfort him? Why not? Why not? Abraham and David, right? After all, Matthew 1.1, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wouldn't it make sense that his father's right? His, this is his line. Why aren't they the ones? These are great heroes of the faith. Why not them? Well, because I don't think it's just about the men who appear. I think it's about what they represent. I think that's part of the profound uh, aspect of this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. This is a living picture that the law and the prophets serve the Messiah, Jesus. They point to the Messiah. They find their fullness in Messiah. And then the voice of God the Father from the majestic glory, affirming the eternal Son. All of these things in front of Peter, James, and John. So why do I love 2 Peter? Well, I, love, I love the affirmation of the scriptures, the prophets, the apostles, Paul's letters. 
I love his reference to the Mount of Transfiguration, bringing in Moses, Elijah, and of course the very voice of God, all testifying, affirming, and serving Jesus the Messiah. As Jesus himself said in John 5, speaking with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law in in one of their confrontations, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And then later in his ministry, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he appears to the two men on the road and speaks to them. And then later in the chapter, uh, the two men from the road are joined with the apostles and then Jesus appears among them. And in that chapter, he says this, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And later, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So for as long as I remain in the tent of this body, I want to always remind you of these things. Jesus is the eternal word of God made flesh. He is the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the gospels, the epistles in the flesh. The Bible bears testimony to him, who is the fullness of the character of God. And without the Bible, we wouldn't know who Jesus is. We cannot and we shall not separate our understanding of Jesus from what is written in the scriptures, for they're in agreement and alignment. And the Spirit testifies about Jesus, glorifies Jesus, and he calls out to our spirit that these things, the things written, are true. I hope you take hold of the truths of these things and that you firmly establish them in your own life. Let's pray. Father, I praise you. We lift, you up, we lift up your name. You have not left yourself without a testimony. You chose to reveal yourself and make yourself known down through the ages to your people. You have not left us in darkness. You have given us your word amazingly through human beings. You worked through your encounters with us, with humans, to give us your word, to reveal your character to us. We praise you and we honor you. I stand amazed 4,000 years after Abraham, 2,000 years after uh, the events of the New Testament of the Gospels, on the other side of the earth speaking a different language, and we have these texts in our hands. That is amazing to me. So thank you for your word. And may you indeed cause it to sink deeply into our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for our discussion questions for you at home with uh, those you're with this morning, first question I, I wrote was, was the one my daughter asked me that morning, how can we trust the Bible? This is 
to me, an incredibly important question to be willing to ask and then to pursue an answer. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> How can we be confident? It's the word of God. Do you struggle with this? <laughs> I don't know if we're going to make this. <laughs> ah. Second, try this exercise at home. Look through Jesus' words in the Gospels and find where he affirms the scriptures, showing his trust in the word of God. And here's an example, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Next. Examine the media that you're consuming. News, TV, music, social media, books. Are they building your confidence in the Bible or are they reducing it? And then finally, what teachers has God provided to help you in your spiritual growth and knowledge of the Bible? Where do you want a deeper understanding? I encourage you to consider these things and to pursue them to an answer. Let me close with a benediction with speaking a blessing over you. <clears throat> I apologize. So receive this. May God perpetually remind you that his word is something completely reliable, a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. When others encourage you to forget these things, may you instead have them sink deeply into your heart and your bones. And may God be with you until we meet again. <clears throat>